0: Everyone either has a period or knows someone that's having a period, but hardly anyone knows exactly what's going on. So in today's episode, we'll discuss menstrual cycles. How do they work and what happens when? You'll find out. My name is Hannah and I'm a doctor working in both sexual health and sexual assault services. And I'm going to be hosting a bunch of guests throughout this series to chat about a range of topics from herpes to infertility, IUDs to syphilis, endometriosis, pelvic floor, and much, much more. Now, I guess it's important to mention straight away that this podcast does not replace or substitute advice you've been given by your own doctor, your nurse, your midwife, physio or any other reliable healthcare practitioner. This is purely a way to open up the conversation about some slightly taboo topics and hopefully get some helpful and reliable information out there. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and feel free to find us on Instagram and we have a Facebook page and a Facebook group by the same name. Now, today's show is our first official episode, so welcome, and I thought I'd start with the normal menstrual cycle. And... I feel like that's really important because it's one of those things that's kind of vaguely glossed over in like year eight biology, but a lot of women seem to get to their late 20s and still feel that they don't really understand their cycle or their body that well. And I've noticed a bit of a trend clinically too, where particularly for a lot of young women who have used hormonal contraception for a long time, they actually feel a bit detached from their own physiology. And don't get me wrong, I'm a huge advocate for hormonal contraception for women who want it and in whom it is safe, but it is interesting that a lot of women seem to be vocalising this concern to me, that they just don't feel like they understand their body specifically. Alright, so when we talk about a menstrual cycle, we're basically referring to the time from the first day of your period until the first day of your next period. And for most people, this will be somewhere between 28 to 35 days. And the duration of your actual menses or period can also vary between individuals. So the average length of a period is five days of bleeding, but for some people it may last up to eight days and for others it might only be two days, for example. So there's great variability in what is normal. In addition to that, it can also be normal for your own cycle length and period length to change with time. So not only can you be different from your friends, your sister, your mom or whatever, but your cycle length can also change as you age. So the term menarche refers to the first period of your entire life. So when you, yeah, that very first time that you have a period, whether that's, at, you know, 12 years old or 16 years old whatever happens for you that's what we refer to as menarche and it's really quite normal for the length of your menstrual cycle to be quite variable in the first five to seven years after menarche and because people reach menarche at different times obviously they'll reach a more regular period at different times as well so yeah very normal in the first few years after that first period to have an irregular slightly more irregular cycle They do tend to regulate, however, through your 20s and your 30s, and they become fairly predictable with a regular cycle length and regular period length in those decades. And then we also notice that in the 10 years leading up to menopause, so through your 40s and maybe early 50s, the cycles can be quite variable and unpredictable again. So I guess all I'm trying to demonstrate is that there can be quite a lot of variability between Individuals and even for yourself. Now, I just wanted to make a side note here. Most people, presumably, have heard of menopause and have some idea about what that is. But just to clarify, um, menopause is actually something that we diagnose retrospectively, so after it has happened. So if somebody of an appropriate age has not had a period for 12 months, then they've reached menopause basically. So it's something that we can't really diagnose or label until it's already happened. The average age of menopause in Australian women is about 51 years. But again, that can vary depending on the individual. And it's important to note too that symptoms of the perimenopausal period or the time surrounding menopause can vary greatly between people, but also it can last many years for some individuals. And those symptoms can include things like hot flushes, night sweats, muscle aches and pains, vaginal dryness, and mood disturbance. And hopefully down the track, we'll be able to do a focused episode on menopause specifically because it's really important. But I guess today we're just focusing more on the reproductive years. I think most people are aware that a period is basically when the lining of the uterus or womb is being shed, and that's as a result of a pregnancy not being established. And most people lose somewhere between kind of six to eight teaspoons of blood. So it's not a dramatic amount. It equates to about 30 or 40 mils with each period. For the purpose, I guess, of this discussion, we're going to assume a fairly textbook menstrual cycle. So we always think about a typical 28-day cycle. And by convention, we always consider the first day of your period to be the first day of your cycle. And the menstrual cycle, so if it's 28 days, it's split into two distinct phases. The first phase lasts from day one to day 14, and it's called the follicular phase. And it's called that because during the follicular phase, basically your brain is sending signals to your ovaries to recruit and mature follicles in preparation for ovulation. So that's the follicular phase. And then the second half of the cycle, which occurs after ovulation, so from day 14 to day 28, is what we call the luteal phase. And there's a really good reason why it's called the luteal phase. And that's because there's this very important structure called the corpus luteum that kind of plays a really significant role in that second half of the cycle. And I will explain that in a bit more detail later for those that are interested. Interesting to mention is that regardless of how long your cycle is, that luteal phase tends to be 14 days regardless of the overall length. So if you're someone who has a 28-day cycle, both the follicular phase will be 14 days and the luteal phase will be 14 days. But if you have a 35-day cycle the follicular phase is the thing that changes, so it will be longer, 21 days, and the luteal phase is highly likely to still be 14 days long. Now, the way in which ovulation occurs is a really intricate and coordinated interaction between your brain, your ovaries, and hormonal messengers. I think everyone's pretty well aware that your hormone levels do fluctuate and change throughout the course of a normal cycle. And particularly, people seem to be aware of the hormones estrogen and progesterone. But I wanted to take a closer look at what hormonal changes are actually occurring, because there's a whole bunch of other hormones that play really important roles as well. And some of those you may not have even heard of, and that's totally fine. Some people won't even be interested really to know about it, and that's okay. I just thought I would preface this part by saying it's it's potentially a little bit dry. So if you're not really a details person, it might be worthwhile just skipping ahead a little bit because this, I guess, section of the podcast will be a little bit science-y, a bit medical. So um, the reason I'm doing it is because I do see a lot of women in my clinic too who are really interested to know a lot of the detail. But unfortunately, because appointments can be short, there's not always the opportunity to have these really detailed discussions. So if you're one of those people who is interested feel free to keep listening. But for those who aren't, um, maybe just skip ahead a few minutes. So basically, there's a small part of your brain, which is called the hypothalamus. And it's thought of as kind of the coordinating system for your endocrine systems in your body. So it's not just important for the menstrual cycle, but the hypothalamus is also, you know, it impacts on other endocrine organs. So this includes like your thyroid gland and your adrenal glands. What the hypothalamus does is release a hormone called GNRH or gonadotropin-releasing hormone. And the GNRH, it's released in pulses, uh, and basically it acts on another part of the brain, which is called the pituitary. Now, the pituitary gland is separated into two separate parts, the anterior pituitary and the posterior pituitary. In terms of, I guess, regulating your menstrual cycle, it's the anterior pituitary that's really important. So this pulsatile GNRH hormone sends a signal to the pituitary, and the anterior pituitary In turn, then secretes two really important hormones called FSH and LH. Now, I might just mention if you are listening to this at home and already getting a little bit kind of confused, that's okay because it's super hard to follow if you're not looking at a picture that kind of explains things. So, even if you Google Um, menstrual cycle hormones, you should pretty much straight away see lots of graphs that um, reflect the different levels of the four main hormones during a menstrual cycle. So it's probably helpful to look at that while you're listening to me explain this because otherwise it can be a bit confusing. In summary, so far, the brain is releasing two hormones called FSH and LH, which will act on the ovaries. So FSH stands for follicle stimulating hormone. So it's a messenger that it's a message that's sent from the brain to the ovary, basically to encourage follicles to develop. So a whole bunch of follicles are recruited and only one of them, like the fittest one, the best one is what will eventually release the egg at the time of ovulation. But there's a whole bunch being recruited in this early follicular phase of your menstrual cycle. And these maturing follicles, they have two really important layers. So the first layer are the theca cells, um, and these are basically what make androgens. And then the second layer is called granulosa cells, and they are what helps convert them to estrogen. Now, as you'll recall, I mentioned two hormones being sent from the brain. So we've covered FSH and the other one is LH. And LH also, it stands for luteinizing hormone, and it basically acts on those theca cells that I mentioned uh, to help them produce androgens. Now, androgens are what we call, you know, they're typically called the quote-unquote male hormones, but, you know, everyone has androgens, men, women, whatever, everyone's got them. But in the ovary, these granulosa cells convert them onto estrogen, which is one of the typical quote-unquote female hormones. I guess that's a really complex way of basically saying that the brain sends FSH and LH to the ovary, which results in follicles being recruited and matured, and the level of the estrogen hormone starts to increase. An increase in the level of estrogen is super, super important and quite interesting from like an evolutionary perspective, because this hormone tends to make women have improved mood, increased libido, they feel confident, and it kind of makes sense because you're more likely to want to have sex around the fertile time around when you're about to ovulate. And that's obviously to improve your chances of falling pregnant. We then get this weird situation where all these hormones are kind of starting to cheer each other on. And it's what we call a positive feedback loop. So the increasing levels of estrogen encourage more FSH and LH from the brain. So they rise more. So the estrogen rises even more. And basically what this results in is a really dramatic increase in estrogen levels right before we ovulate. Now, just to complicate things a little bit further, I'm going to introduce another hormone, which is called inhibin. Now, inhibin is a hormone that basically has an opposing effect on FSH to estrogen. So as I mentioned, estrogen is encouraging more FSH to be produced, but inhibin is doing the opposite thing. So the result that we see is that the FSH Uh, level actually starts to decline. And this is how we work out which follicle will release the egg at ovulation. Because the levels of the hormone are falling, it'll be the one that has the most receptors that can remain sensitive at very low levels that will survive the longest. So that one dominant follicle will survive while all the other ones will atrophy or die, basically. So unlike FSH, LH is not being inhibited by that inhibin hormone. So what we see is that it just increases and increases and increases. So it results in what's called an LH surge. And this is what actually prompts your body to release an egg and ovulate. And so that egg is released from the dominant follicle, the one follicle that has been left surviving. All the others have died off. For quite complex and confusing reasons, estrogen then does this weird thing where it flips from being a positive reinforcement on FSH and LH to being a negative reinforcement. It's like it passes a threshold where suddenly it just stops being encouraging to those hormones. So what we see then is that these hormones being sent from the brain actually start to drop really rapidly. And again, this will be much easier to understand if you're looking at one of those diagrams that um, depicts these four hormones during your cycle. Now, a hormone that you've all heard of but we haven't have really talked about so far is the progesterone hormone. And that's because progesterone is much more important and at higher levels in the second half of the cycle. So, so far we've kind of talked about the follicular phase up until ovulation. So what happens after you ovulate? Basically, the follicle that has released the egg, it still remains in the ovary, but we stop calling it a follicle because the egg has gone and we now refer to it as the corpus luteum. And that's why we call this second half of the phase the luteal phase. It's named after that corpus luteum. And it's the corpus luteum Sitting inside the ovary that is actually secreting the progesterone hormone. And pr- progesterone is progestational, like it's a hormone that encourages and prepares the body for gestation or pregnancy. So, one of the things it's doing at this point in your cycle is preparing the endometrium, so that's the lining of the uterus or womb, for implantation. Of the embryo. So if fertilization occurs, your uterus is already ready to receive that that embryo for pregnancy. Now, the corpus luteum only survives if that LH hormone is present. But as we know, because we've just discussed it, is that that LH hormone is actually starting to fall. So If the LH hormone disappears altogether, the corpus luteum will degrade and go away and will therefore stop secreting progesterone and therefore it will stop having all those pro-pregnancy effects to help um, if fertilization occurs. I guess the difference is that if the egg is fertilized, um, another hormone called human chorionic gonadotropin is produced or HCG and it's like structurally quite similar to LH so it takes on that role of supporting the corpus luteum if a pregnancy does occur. So if fertilization occurs um, it doesn't quite matter so much that the LH is dropping because the HCG takes over its role in supporting the corpus luteum. So then you get this lovely situation where the HCG is supporting the corpus luteum which is producing the progesterone which is creating this nice pregnancy environment Uh, and this is all because fertilization has occurred and therefore the uterus will be ready for that pregnancy to be implanted if a pregnancy does occur that corpus luteum actually persists and continues producing the progesterone to support a pregnancy up until about 10 weeks of gestation so it's really really important in the early early weeks of pregnancy However, if fertilization doesn't occur, as we've discussed, that LH hormone will be dropping and dropping and dropping, uh, and eventually the corpus luteum will just degrade, the progesterone levels will subsequently drop, and therefore you will have a period. So if anyone has managed to stay with me through that explanation, well done. I know not everybody will care enough to kind of know all of that in a lot of detail and that's fine Um, but as I mentioned some people are interested so hopefully that's helpful if there's anything that you need clarifying with please reach out on Instagram or whatever and just ask me I'm happy to revisit anything if that was confusing. I guess another really important part of the menstrual cycle is the change in cervical mucus because uh, that also helps um, dictate fertile phases and things like that. So obviously when you, have your, when you have your period, it's really hard to tell what mucus is coming from the cervix, so we kind of disregard when you're actually bleeding. But then there's three kind of basic patterns of cervical mucus. The first one is called the post-menstrual infertile phase. So basically, this is straight after you've had a period. And usually at this stage, the vagina is quite dry. Some people do describe a bit of a flaky or a, dis- a sticky discharge, but generally it's it's dry and i kind of like to think that the cervix is just being quite practical here it's like we're not even fertile right now so i'm not even going to bother the second phase is the ovulatory or fertile phase so while all that very confusing endocrine stuff is happening that i've just explained your cervix is also helping out so at this point in time the mucus from the cervix becomes quite elastic and it has an egg white consistency um And some people do actually use this to help work out when they could be ovulating, whether or not that's because they're trying to fall pregnant or if they're using um, natural methods of family planning. Uh, It's not super reliable as a standalone method, but um, it does help people to kind of, I guess, understand what's going on with their body. And then the third phase of cervical mucus is what's called the post-ovulatory infertile phase. So it's just after you've ovulated, we're thinking, obviously, you've released an egg, so there's a possibility that that has been fertilised and we basically don't want more sperm making it through. So at this point, uh, the discharge tends to be thick, cloudy and sticky, kind of <laughs> a disgusting comparison, but people say it's kind of like clad glue. Um So yeah, and that's, again, makes sense because the progesterone levels are really high at that point in the pregnancy and it's supporting this environment of, you know, thinking potential pregnancy has already occurred. So why would we need more sperm to get through the cervix? We don't. So I guess lastly, just relating to menstrual cycles, I wanted to make mention of PMS or premenstrual syndrome. And basically this is characterized by you know, physical and behavioural symptoms that occur repetitively for people. So um, it tends to always be in the second phase of the cycle, so that luteal phase, and most commonly it's in the first few days uh, before a period and sometimes persists while the period is occurring as well. Um, I guess lots of people do have symptoms associated with their luteal phase, But PMS is specifically describing those women who describe kind of an impact on their life or day-to-day functioning as a result. So it's estimated to affect up to probably 8% of reproductive age women. And common symptoms are bloating, breast tenderness, mood swings. Uh, Some people feel really tired, angry, worried, sad, hopeless. Some people find quite dramatic changes in how much they eat, how well they sleep. People can experience headaches and also quite significant pain. So you might be listening to that and think, you know, I experienced some of those symptoms with, you know, leading up to my period. Um, and a lot of us do, but I guess, yeah, the difference is just whether or not those symptoms are dramatic enough to really impact your life, your well being, whether you can engage in school or work and all that kind of stuff. There's also a more severe subtype of PMS, which some of you may be aware of, but it's called premenstrual dysphoric disorder or PMDD. And basically, this is a really debilitating medical condition where people can experience quite severe depression, hopelessness, anxiety, change in appetite, low energy levels, poor sleep, weight change. And there's also usually a significant amount of distress associated with those symptoms. And the pre- Prevalence of PMDD is estimated to be around 2% of reproductive age women. And I guess I just wanted to highlight those two things because I think we can, I mean, society in general can kind of minimise the experience women have in those in that luteal phase um, and kind of say period pain is normal, just get over it, you know. I think there really needs to be recognition that for some people this is a very serious and debilitating medical issue. And if you are finding that your symptoms associated with your menstrual cycle are affecting you significantly, please seek help from your GP or family planning clinic or wherever you can seek help, please do because it's, it's not something that you should have to live with. And there are things that can help you manage those symptoms. So thanks for listening today, guys. I know that was potentially a bit of a dry science heavy episode. So i sorry if you found it a bit boring. Hopefully the episodes coming will be a bit more interesting. Um, I'll be interviewing a whole bunch of people, as I mentioned, um, Some of those will be doctors or physios, midwives, uh, about their area of expertise, all related to sexual and reproductive health, women's health, those kind of things. Uh, But I'll also be interviewing uh, a number of um, people that follow me on Instagram who have kindly offered up their time to chat about what type of contraception they use. And the reason behind that was basically that I wanted um, people to get a feel for what it's actually like to use a certain type of contraception. So Hopefully when I have a guest on, the episodes will be a bit more interesting for you. But um, yeah, if you do have any questions about anything I've talked about today, please feel free to reach out. Uh, And if you do like the podcast, please subscribe. Thanks, guys. bye. Bye. You to You, You to Me, You to Us is a podcast for general discussion only. Nothing we talk about should be taken as personal medical advice and it does not substitute information or instructions given to you by your own doctor. If the podcast raises any questions or concerns for you, please see your GP, sexual health or family planning clinic. For general discussion, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. And please, stop trusting strangers on the internet with your health. This podcast is a production of Simo Interactive, home of the My Millennial Money podcast.